The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. It's been called one of the most important poems of the 20th century, if not the most important. Virginia Woolf said, quote, It has great beauty and force of phrase, symmetry, intensity. Published in 1922, its 434 lines smash together the legend of the Holy Grail and the Fisher King with a modern, contemporary, sophisticated look at the way the world was changing. In particular, the urban life of metropolises like London in the aftermath of the brutal horrors of World War I. The poem shifts and surprises, jarring us, soothing us, reassuring us only to confuse us all over again, drawing upon literary and cultural references like old poems, Buddhist texts, the Hindu Upanishads, wild prophecies, satire, popular music, catchphrases, and overheard dialogue. The result is a post-apocalyptic vision of a world with an intellectual and cultural continuity exploded into fragments and a half-insane mind trying to put it back together. We're talking, of course, about The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. But who was T.S. Eliot? What was modernism, and how did he fit into it? What's the wasteland about, and why was it so revolutionary? And what does the poem have for us today? Elliot, today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm glad you're here today. That music you heard in the opening was by composer Igor Stravinsky, The Rite of Spring. First composed in 1913. It still sounds fresh and jarring. Legend has it that the first night it was performed in Paris, the audience rioted. That's the backdrop of everything we're going to talk about today. This was a time of upheaval, not just in poetry, but in all of literature. The Wasteland was published in 1922, the same year as Joyce's Ulysses, which transformed the novel. Music was changing, painting, architecture, sculpture. Artists were transforming the way they viewed artistic forms. They were pushing against it, pushing against boundaries, not just in Anglophone countries, but across Europe, across the Latin American world, too. We'll talk about what that meant and why it happened. But let's start with a traditional look at T.S. Eliot. Let's just do a straight little biography of the man before we get into modernism and poetry and the wasteland itself. And we'll sprinkle in a few listener emails as well. The emails... 
Oh, look, people, I am absolutely floored by the feedback I get. I've tried to focus on listeners and their love for literature. Maybe that's come across as me looking for emails that will flatter me and the show. I hear you. I'm not here to brag. I'm not here to be self-serving. Well, what am I here for? That's the question. (laughs) As the show gets bigger, I can see where the audience is changing and people start to feel like they're listening out of obligation Maybe that means I have to be a little less rough around the edges. It's like the move David Letterman made when he went from 12.30 to 11.30. His show at 12.30 on NBC was amazing. One of my favorite television viewing experiences of all time. It probably helped that I was in high school. And look, this sounds like a digression, but it's kind of relevant too. It all ties together. You'll soon see. Television wasn't around during modernism. It's had its own pioneers. It had its own traditions that were undermined, there to be undermined. And Letterman was a great disruptor. Rock and roll, there's another thing that wasn't around during modernism, but you could say that that did something similar to popular music at the time. And punk rock was similar once again, a disruptive force. We've come so far from modernism now from where T.S. Eliot and James Joyce were. So now they're so firmly established in the literary canon that it's hard to remember them as a disruptive force. And Virginia Woolf, same thing. If you only know Letterman as a 60-something guy with a pretty conventional and bland talk show, his CBS show in the 2000s, 2010s, you probably don't think of him as a disruptor. But in the 1980s, the era of punk rock, he was turning television upside down. Or maybe I should say inside out. He didn't care. They had an episode that rotated for an hour, with the frame of the screen moving one degree around every minute, so that halfway through, it was upside down. But it wasn't just gimmicks like that. It was a whole state of mind. It said, yes, your father loves Johnny Carson and all those guests, Bob Hope and Gregory Peck, and so on, the big band music, real old-time Hollywood with that big, heavy curtain and the smooth Rat Pack sensibility. But you, young person, you, rebellious person, you, the cynic, the one who's looking around at the Cold War era, at the post-Vietnam, post-Watergate world you've inherited, do you really want this sort of vaudeville entertainment? Isn't everyone laughing a little too hard at jokes that aren't all that funny? Isn't it kind of phony? Isn't it pretending to be something that it isn't? Well, Letterman embodied that spirit, that F.U. culture. Here's the theme song for Johnny Carson. Ah. Just listen to this. It's like Frank Sinatra, up-tempo, brassy. It's the era of the 1950s and 60s and 70s. It's, oh, just listen. Let's skip to the ending. Let's hear how this ends. Oh. Oh, Letterman revered Johnny Carson, and so do I. He was kind of like my grandfather. If my grandfather was a little more sophisticated and urbane and funny, 
My grandfather was funny, but sort of unintentionally funny. It's funny because he was fiery. He was always fired up. He watched Johnny Carson staring at the screen, looking for the jokes. My grandmother watched as well. They fell asleep on the couch watching. Well, David Letterman revered Johnny, but when he got the 1230 show, he had to make changes. Carson required it. Carson owned part of that show. There was no opening monologue. Dave had to do opening remarks. No guests on the couch. That had to be on a chair, and they had to leave when their segment was over. No sidekick sitting there, no brass band. It didn't matter. Letterman was ready to turn things upside down. Reinvent late night. And here's another key. Letterman's creative and romantic partner, Meryl Marco, the unsung genius of the late night world, did not revere Johnny Carson at all. She viewed him as kind of the problem with Hollywood, the problem with the entertainment industry, the problem with television. She viewed him as a gatekeeper who would never open the gate for her because she was young, because she was different, because she was irreverent, because she was cynical, because she was ironic, but mostly because she was a woman. And so she said, well, he doesn't want us to do those things on this show? Great, because we'll do something else. We'll be subversive. We'll have stupid pet tricks. And we'll take the show out into the street and interview people and we'll criticize the parent company and we'll put Dave in a Velcro suit and an Elka-Seltzer suit and a magnet suit. We'll drop things off of buildings and smash them on the ground. We'll have oddball guests who have something to say. We'll do things that no one has ever seen and no one would ever expect on a network television show. We'll make watching our show a little breathless of an experience like you're watching a show that could fall apart at any time or get canceled or be boring. Our show will take risks. Why? Why? Because people are hungry for something that's not safe. They're tired of being spoon-fed entertainment. They're tired of the inauthentic. Johnny was very, very good at what he did. He was the king. And he was subversive within certain boundaries. But you always got the sense that he probably had more fun before and after the show than he did during the show. Well, the Meryl Marco and David Letterman show was going to be different. Listen to their theme song. Okay, that was the Carson Show, just to give you a reminder of what that sounded like. And then, here comes Dave. You hear the difference? The song and this show, this show said, hey, look at what we've had to grow up with. We're hiding under our desks to practice nuclear holocaust. We've seen Vietnam and all the lying and horrible destruction that came with it. We saw Watergate, where all these people were supposed to, we were supposed to respect and revere, turned out to be crooks and thieves and liars. We're not going to come on and just pretend like we have answers. We're going to show you that we have questions. We aren't going to present the system, the global entertainment system. We're going to take that system apart. The 1970s has seen that happen with filmmakers like Coppola and Lucas and Spielberg and Scorsese and De Palma. The 1980s late night world saw it happen with Letterman and later Arsenio Hall. And Johnny felt himself getting less relevant 
And he started trying to do some of Letterman's bits, and it was sad for a while. And then he straightened out and just did his thing for a few more years and rode off into the sunset. His era had passed. Where was I? So I was talking about my podcast. <laughs> so I was a little talk about hubris. I went on this long <laughs> I went on this long about this Letterman and Carson thing, not because I think it's relevant to the history of literature, but because we're talking about disruption today, disruptive forces, and that's modernism and T. S. Eliot and the wasteland in a nutshell. It's looking at your era and saying, wait, hang on. The forms don't fit. This doesn't fit my life, my times, my era, me, us. We need something new. We need a break with the old. We need something new that reflects where we are and who we are. Now, to finish my thought, I don't have thoughts like that about the podcast, but I do think there was sort of an early Letterman spirit to the history of literature when I didn't think anyone was listening, when I didn't think anybody cared, when I was just howling at the night, when I was desperate and lonely and scared, scared that I didn't know what to do. That's my biggest fear, I think, that things are not going to be okay, that I'm not going to do enough to make them better, and I'm not even going to know what to do, and I will forever live with a feeling of guilt about it. And that's on a macro level, looking at world events like politics and climate change, and on a micro level of my family. Ah, my first thought when I learned that my first child was going to be a boy was, I will disappoint him. That's just ridiculous. That's a horrible way to live. And yet here I am living. I'm trying to be honest about it. So I hear the criticism. Geez, you read these emails and they're full of praise for the show. And isn't that self-serving, Mr. Jack Wilson? And I think, yeah, probably. Probably. It probably is very irritating to some people and probably losing listeners left and right. I didn't really think of it that way. I thought of it as, wait, if I'm out here, not just taking you through literature, not just marching through it in the sort of, this man was born on this date and wrote this poem and that poem, but in the sense of, my God, I'm drowning, I'm suffocating, and I used to turn to literature for help. Is it still there for me? Well, if that show, that weird idea for a show, if that's resonating with people, then it tells me that other people are doing the same thing. They're in the same boat. They're not, or not in the boat. <laughs> We're the ones who have fallen overboard. They're not putting on neckties and reading literature like ah, the way some people use literature as a stick to beat other people down. As in, you don't know this and you don't know that and you don't know, you don't know, you don't know. You don't know as much as I do. That's the worst part about literature. The worst it's this attitude people have of, oh, you can't talk about literature because you don't know enough to talk about it. So, I don't care. I don't care at all what people like that think. I don't need to know anything about literature to talk about it. I'm living life, and that's enough. So, where were we? Yes, listener emails. So, part of me thinks, fine, we probably shouldn't read these emails anymore because they are full of praise for the show. That's what resonates with me. Not because I'm looking for flattery, but because they are my people. The people who like the show are the people who feel desperate too. <laughs> They're searchers like me. But on the other hand, I think, ah, you're right. We shouldn't read any emails anymore, but then who cares? I'm not an employee of anyone. Why would I want to work for the critics? 
Why should I let them tell me what to do? I, I feel like reading emails. Why shouldn't I? Why shouldn't I do it? And maybe I'll change my mind, but here's why I've decided not to, for now at least. When people say they like the show, I don't think it's about me. I don't think it's really praise, because I don't think this show is all that good, frankly. It's more weird than good, in my view. I have to put together old shows sometimes for things, and I think, why wouldn't anyone listen to those? <laughs> they're terrible. They must be terrible. I haven't heard them in a while. They must be terrible. I'm sure they're awful. So when I read the nice things about the show, I view it as an affirmation of the approach that I'm taking. You can go read an encyclopedia about these authors and these works. You can listen to a hundred different podcasts about books and literature. Those all have hosts who are respectable and informed and very well-mannered and so on. They make a nice salary or they're doing a nice project. They would never deign to read an email full of praise for the show, just like they probably wouldn't play the Carson theme song and the Letterman theme song because it just didn't occur to them, and even if it did, they would erase it. NPR exists, I am aware. I'm sure they have plenty of shows about books that are nice and safe. Are we in a nice and safe era? I'm not sure we are, and listener emails suggest that at least some of you agree with me on that much, at least. So you are my people, people. Okay. Enough about me. Sometimes I just have to get this stuff off my chest. Or I can't go on. My poor interns write these nice scripts for me. And then I just rant and rave. <laughs> and until they fire me, I guess that's what I'll do. Don't worry. We'll have plenty about Mr. Elliot as well as Mr. Wilson today. But first, let's hear from some listeners. We'll do that after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, I'm fired up now. <laughs> First up, an email from Alex in Switzerland. Subject, thank you. Hi, my name is Alex, and I am a 20-years-old English student at Lausanne University in Switzerland. Not Sweden, but the small country next to France that is Switzerland. 
I don't have any particular comment to make about a particular podcast of yours, but I just want to thank you. I have only extremely lately discovered your podcast while revising for my exam on the lesson called Anglo-American Literature Survey. You have already made podcasts on a lot of the authors that I need to know about. Thanks to you, I understood Thoreau's self-reliance and civil disobedience processes better. In addition to being extremely interesting, your podcasts are useful for students like me. I've already told my friend about the great discovery I made, and they are as happy about it as I am. Thank you very much. I still have a lot of your podcasts to listen to, and I am already looking forward to it. Merci beaucoup, as we say in Lausanne. I wish you a good day or evening, depending on when you are going to read this email. Best regards, Alex. Well, Alex, you are welcome, and thank you for such a nice email. I'm glad to hear that you and your friends are diving into the world of literature over there in Switzerland, which is not Sweden, which is good for me to remember because I am half Swiss. The next time I go to visit my relatives, I will try to make sure the plane lands in the Alps and not further north. The land of the cuckoo clock and not Ikea. I grew up with a cuckoo clock and was thinking of getting one for the house here, but my wife, who is not Swiss, would probably hammer the thing to pieces with a baseball bat. She's a light sleeper. So I've done my part to save the cuckoo clock from certain destruction, at least in this household. You're welcome, Switzerland. Let's just do students today. Here's one from a non-traditional student, Phil. Subject, I enjoy your podcast. Dear Jack, I discovered your podcast a few months ago and have been slowly catching up while listening to the current episodes. I find you to be easy to listen to while stimulating, engaging, and very educational. I am a retired physician, and most of my reading has been history and science fiction. I did read Anna Karenina many years ago and thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a pleasure to read. I also found Tolstoy's ideas stimulating. I was driven to read it after I had watched the nine-part masterpiece series in the early 80s, starring the beautiful and talented Nicola Paget. It was a wonderful miniseries. I also love your musical interludes. Your references to the Beatles and Sinatra are appreciated as they are among my favorites. I grew up with rock and roll, but I really love the Great American Songbook and the music of the first half of the 20th century. In one episode I just listened to, you played one of Billie Holiday's first recordings. She did more with her limited range than many others could do, with three times her range. Like Frank, she could tell the story in the song. Frank said once that he owed a lot to Billy. On that recording, you can hear the distinctive style of the pianist, Teddy Wilson, who played a lot with her. His style accentuated the emotion she could put into a song, which is what Sinatra learned to do when he rebuilt his career. I also am enjoying your tour through Shakespeare's sonnets, which I guess it just started. The recordings of the recitations of those sonnets adds a lot to the discussion. Harriet Walter and Ian McKellen were wonderful. Your podcast is an inspiration. Even in my advanced years, born 1950, I will start to read some of this literature. I have just bought a collection of Raymond Carver's short stories and will get the Dorothy Parker reader. I grew up with the science fiction of the 50s and 60s. I don't like the term sci-fi. Of that era, I would point to Arthur C. Clarke before Asimov as much as I like Asimov. One of the most memorable to me was The Nine Billion Names of God. Also, A Canticle for Leibowitz by Walter Miller. Thank you so much, Phil. Well, Phil, thank you for your email. A retired physician who loves Anna Karenina and Anna Karenina on television. Those are some of my best memories, too. Masterpiece Theater in its heyday. Wow. Awesome stuff. Also, the mystery series. PBS in general. 
from Sesame Street to Nova to, well, in the 70s and 80s, it was just excellent. The fourth channel, the good channel. It's changed a bit now. It's not quite as good and definitely not as necessary, but it was there for me when I was being formed. Okay, so here's what's inspiring to me. You were born in 1950, Phil, and you're retired now. It's easy to give up. Just let yourself slide. And yet here you are, Phil, as curious as the 20-year-olds. That's inspiring to me. That's amazing. It's wonderful. Keep going, Phil. Keep stretching your mind and learning and letting us all hear the results. Be a better person. That's not advice I'm giving to Phil, because he clearly doesn't need it. But to the rest of you, all you 20-somethings, when you look back on your life someday, don't let it ever be said that you gave up, that you just started phoning it in, that you got cynical and stopped trying. Keep searching and expanding and exploring. It's the best way to live. Thank you, Phil. Okay. Here's one that isn't a student, but this one cracks me up so much I'm going to include it anyway. It's from Ruthie in Israel. Subject, a few points, Jack. (laughs) Such a great subject line. A few points, comma, Jack. Attention grabbing. Jack, shalom from Israel. I have been fascinated by your podcast since I first heard you say literature, using four syllables, making the words sound like an arpeggio, or a bubbling brook, or... A shake of slinky silk. So unlike the three-syllable version that I grew up with in England, that, in comparison, sounds like trying to open a wood-warped door with creaky hinges or chewing a cheekful of chalk. (laughs) Oh, my goodness, Ruthie. Ruthie, Ruth, that cracks me up. Literature versus literature. Creaky hinges, cheek full of chalk. That's great stuff. I kind of think of myself as having the accent of a rube, a combination of Wisconsin as pressed through Chicago and Italy and Taiwan and Seattle and New York and D.C. and California and all the other places I've lived these past three decades. But okay, a shake of slinky silk, it shall be from now on. I'm going to print that one out and hang it on the studio doors. So when the interns start getting restless, thinking they can oust me, that they can talk to the producers and oust me. I'll say, how do you pronounce literature? Do you say it like an arpeggio or a bubbling brook? Like a shake of slinky silk? I don't think so. I think you sound like a wood-warped door with creaky hinges, disqualified. The listeners of this show are far too discerning for you to come in here with your posh accent, your literature. Three syllables, not because you're Efficient, but because you have no rube in you, that fourth syllable is the extra ingredient, the secret sauce, the dose of hayseed that makes this thing work. Okay, back to the email. I'm carried away. I don't care. Back to the email. Anyway, Ruthie says, that's what hooked me, your voice saying that word. Since then, I've come to like almost everything you say. I've just listened to the episode on Shakespeare's 29th sonnet, You coaxed that 17th century language right up into the 21st, showing us how the situations and accompanying emotions and responses haven't changed at all. For my taste, you were a little too heavy on the Frank Sinatra parallels, but of course that's part of the interest, hearing what Jack Wilson, who seems to have read, understood, and pondered over practically everything ever written, has to say. It's your podcast and your associations, and when I'm thinking, oh, that's that's a bit rich... Then you've succeeded in making me think about the text myself and how I would bring over its message. That's a bit rich. Ha ha, Ruthie. You started this. I'm I'm saying this in all caps now. 
You started your email saying that you were hooked because I said the word literature with four syllables instead of three. So you know that you are a kindred spirit. I see you, Ruthie. I see you thinking just like me. And if you had a podcast, it would be like this one. Oh, it's a bit rich, is it? Well, we are a bit rich, aren't we, Ruthie? You and me? (laughs) All caps button is off. Back to the email. Ruthie says, I haven't listened to every episode yet, and I'm wondering whether you would advise me to go for those whose authors I already know, or should I purposely prioritize those who I'm not familiar with? Time is limited, you know, so sometimes hard choices must be made. In any case, I did want to tell you that whenever I do listen, usually when walking the dog or cooking, I'm enthralled and would only ask that you pronounce the L word a little more often. It always cheers me up. Post-corona, would you consider doing an international speaking tour and coming to Israel? Even better, come talk to my book club. We're a lovely group of middle-aged women, and we always serve good refreshments. Very best regards, Ruthie. (laughs) Oh, this is such a great email. Such a great email. Okay, Ruthie, you are on the list. We are headed. Where are we headed on our tour? Maybe this should be a television special. Jack goes to visit the listeners. We have three to visit in Brazil. We've been invited to our French vineyard. Where else is our road tour? Well, now it includes Ruthie's book club and their refreshments. Oh, William Trevor's hometown. That was one. I'll show up. At Ruthie's place, pronounce the word literature, eat some goodies, and leave again, swirling my cape as I walk out the door. I don't actually wear a cape. I sort of did once. It wasn't a cape. It was a coat. It was an Italian army coat I bought to get me through the winter in Bologna, and I was at an osteria drinking with friends, and I wanted to make a big impression as I left the table. wanted to leave with a flourish. I was... I put the coat on over my shoulders as if it were a cape, and I walked out with confidence. That was my plan. A 20-year-old, excited to be in Europe, confident, eager, showing off. And my cape, or my coat, but I was wearing it sort of like a cape, was behind me, and it landed on the table as I twirled. And then as I walked away, I pulled all the glassware from the table onto the floor. Bottles, glasses, beer, wine, water, it all came with me. And I jerked it onto the floor like a bad magician who tries to pull the tablecloth out and sends all the plates and glasses flying everywhere because he's no good at his job. And instead of being the coolest guy in the world, I was apologizing and picking up glass shards and helping the staff sweep everything up and borrowing cash from people so I could pay for everything. What a nightmare. Welcome to the world of Jack Wilson. It's a nightmare in here, folks. Things go wrong. Very wrong. All the time. Okay, Ruthie, thank you very much for your email. I love to hear about your book club, and will indeed look forward to visiting someday. Oh, and as for her question... I responded in the email to her. Of course, I told her she should do both. Reading new authors is awesome. And so is revisiting old favorites. Find whatever stretches you the most and skip whatever doesn't. Okay, last email. Subject, T.S. Eliot. Hello, my name is Emily and I am taking 20th century American literature. I have been assigned The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot and I did not find a podcast for him from you. I would be over the moon if you would consider making one about him. Perhaps you could even talk about modernism and the poem. I started reading it 
and it is quite difficult, and your podcast has always helped me. Best wishes, Emily. Emily, your wish is my command. Here is the episode. We've taken a while, but now we're ready. So enjoy your trip over the moon, Emily, because here it is. And yes, modernism will be a big part of our discussion. That's coming up after this. Thomas Stearns Elliott was born in 1888 into a Boston Brahmin family, the kind of family that traces their roots back for generations and has all kinds of money and can assume privilege and success as a kind of birthright. If there's anything redeeming about his particular branch of the Elliots, it's that they they moved to St. Louis, which was no doubt to make more money, but also because his grandfather wanted to establish a Unitarian Christian church there. His father was a successful businessman. His mother was a social worker who wrote poetry on the side. Tom, which is what everyone called him then, had five older siblings. He was a sickly child, afflicted with congenital hernias that kept him out of sports and other physical activities. So instead, he curled up with a book and sat by the window, reading big books. His friend later said that Elliot, quote, would often curl up in the window seat behind an enormous book setting the drug of dreams against the pain of living, end quote. The books he read back then were adventure stories, mostly like stories of the Wild West, and Mark Twain's stories about Tom Sawyer. Mark Twain, of course, is kind of the literary patron saint of the Mississippi River, which wasn't lost on Tom. He was also a fan of the Mississippi River, which ran outside his house in St. Louis. Later in life, he said, quote, It is self-evident that St. Louis affected me more deeply than any other environment has ever done. I feel that there is something in having passed one's childhood beside the big river, which is incommunicable to those people who have not. I consider myself fortunate to have been born here rather than in Boston or New York or London. End quote. And later in life, he said, quote, Missouri and the Mississippi have made a deeper impression on me than any other part of the world, end quote. Elliot went to school at a boys' preparatory academy, first in St. Louis and then for a year in Massachusetts. He was exposed to a wide variety of literature and philosophy, which continued when he went to Harvard, where he also added anthropology and Indian philosophy and Sanskrit. This is all important for us to consider when we get to his time in London, where he started writing modernist poetry, but let's save that for now, or rather, let's save what he did with all that education and exposure to literature and just picture him absorbing it all. This is from age 10 to 18. He was studying ancient Greek, French, and German. He was writing some poetry. The poems he wrote in his school years tended to be in the style of the day, which was heavily influenced by Victorians like Alfred Lord Tennyson. We'll have more about that later, too. At Harvard, Eliot studied comparative literature and English literature and met the writer Conrad Aiken, who eventually helped introduce him to Ezra Pound. And here, when he was at Harvard, he started discovering the writers who changed him. 
He's now about 19 or 20, let's say, in our narrative. He learned about Jules Laforgue and Arthur Rimbaud, Paul Verlaine, Tristan Corbiere, and he started looking to poets like Baudelaire instead of just Tennyson and his ilk disruptors. The seedlings for Eliot's later disruption are there. And he's immersed in philosophy. He went to graduate school, worked as a philosophy assistant at Harvard, then moved to Paris and studied philosophy at the Sorbonne. He attended lectures by Bergson, who was busy exploring the nature of time. A lot of heady stuff that Eliot was taking in in his early 20s. He fell in love with a woman named Emily Hale, who was probably the woman he should have married. Instead, he went to Oxford on a scholarship he went to Germany to study for the summer, and World War I broke out, so he went to Oxford, which he hated. There were a lot of Americans who were at Oxford, at his college in particular, Merton College, so many that at one of the meetings Eliot attended, one of the clubs he was trying to join, they proposed a motion, quote, that this society abhors the Americanization of Oxford, end quote. It didn't pass, but it was close, barely. That motion didn't pass. I'm sure Elliot apparently argued against it. <laughs> Poor Elliot. Please like us. Uh, I'm sure Elliot didn't feel all that welcome. And he didn't like Oxford in return. Here's what he wrote to Aiken on New Year's Eve, 1914. I quote, I hate university towns and university people who are the same everywhere with pregnant wives, sprawling children, many books, and hideous pictures on the walls. Oxford is very pretty, but I don't like to be dead, end quote. Think about that. That's pretty important. He was 26 when he wrote it. He was writing some seriously good poems now. His love song of J. Alfred Prufrock was about to come out, and he hates the university town. He spent most of his time in London. He met Ezra Pound, who liked him, who thought he was someone worth watching, and who took him around to meet people. Pound validated Eliot in a way. Pound was, in these years at late, Pound was a great advocate, a champion, a doer, someone who made things happen. He found literary causes and pushed hard to help them. He had a huge influence on Eliot and the Wasteland, mainly because he crossed a lot of things out. He would say, this has been done before, gone. Or this has been done better, gone. This isn't interesting, gone. It's a good way to write poetry, actually. Auden did something similar. Write a lot of lines, eliminate all the bad ones, the limp ones, the cliches, and let the great, ringing, resounding new ones stay. Readers can make leaps. That's what poetry readers do. I mean, if you did the same thing with fiction or a novel, you might end up with a nonsensical mess. might be hard to follow. But in a poem, you might have an imaginative leap. You didn't need those lines. Readers can do the work. They might even like the jump. The sharp juxtaposition might bring out something in and of itself. The reader might supply some meaning there. So that's what Pound did for The Wasteland. And it's why Eliot called him Il Miglior Fabro in the dedication, which was to Ezra Pound. And Il Miglior Fabro means the better craftsman. It's a line Dante used for one of his favorite poets. Okay. Back to Eliot's life. He spent time in London meeting people and absorbing the world that Europe was becoming as World War I introduced everyone to the horrors of poison gas and trench warfare. And here's where poetry and modernism all start to combine. And we can see how a poem like The Wasteland not only represents a change in form, but a reflection of its era. But first, we need to wrap up one more biographical detail. 
Elliot got married to an English woman named Vivian, and the marriage was a disaster. He wanted to burn his boats to America and settle in England, put down some roots there. He taught school for a while, and he got a job in a bank, and eventually in a publishing house. He converted to Anglicanism and became a British citizen and kept writing poetry and writing essays, and he really worked at a very high quality. His output was very high. He wrote a lot of good stuff. That might have to be saved for another show. We should dive into Eliot's later life. We should talk about the four quartets and his plays and his religious conversion and the controversy surrounding his anti-Semitism. His publication of a generation of British British poets as an editor. His essays, especially Tradition and the Individual Talent, which were and are hugely influential. We can't cover it all today, people, because we are headed for the wasteland. And here's where we need to wrap up Elliot's personal life by focusing on his unhappy marriage. Vivian had health issues and eventually suffered from mental health issues as well. Years after she and Tom separated, her brother had her committed in a mental asylum against her wishes. That's tough stuff. When Tom was married to her, she suffered from habitually high temperature, fatigue, insomnia, migraines, and colitis. She may have had an affair with Bertrand Russell when she was a newlywed. Some say the evidence is there for it. Some disagree. She had periods of time when they had to send her away for her health, hoping she would recover, but it didn't happen. Here's what Elliot wrote years later when he was in his 60s in private papers. Quote, I came to persuade myself that I was in love with Vivian simply because I wanted to burn my boats and commit myself to staying in England. And she persuaded herself, also under the influence of Pound, that she would save the poet by keeping him in England. To her, the marriage brought no happiness. To me, it brought the state of mind out of which came the wasteland. End quote. So that's our background as we reach 1922. And Elliot is in his early 30s. Joyce has been publishing excerpts of Ulysses for a few years. Painting has changed. It's gone from the beautiful and faithful representations to something more challenging, more experimental, more personal and subjective, and more fragmented. Impressionism, post-impressionism, cubism. These are painters looking to reflect not just reality, but a different kind of reality, a different view of the world, the individual's personal view of the world, trying to reflect a world that is itself full of conflict and change and strife. The music of Stravinsky is not the music of Beethoven and Brahms. And our poet, Eliot, he's deeply unhappy with his marriage. He's seen London He's seen soldiers, heard the stories of the atrocities, seen the impact that war can have, modern war. And he's seen a rapidly developing world in London. He was listening to records on the gramophone and drinking cups of coffee in the cafes and working in the banks. The world was fast. The world was intense. The world was noisy and mechanical and full of explosions. And he looked at the poetry of the past, dominated by an Alfred Lord Tennyson, and said, how does this fit? How does this work in today's world? Let's take a look at what Eliot wrote back when he was a schoolboy, when he was still in the tradition handed down by Tennyson. Here's how his first published poem sounded, the 1905 student poem, A Fable for Feasters. Here's excerpt one. In England, long before that royal Mormon... King Henry VIII found that monks were quacks and took their lands and money for the poor men 
and bought, brought their abbeys tumbling at their backs. You hear the end rhyme there. Another excerpt. The lights began to burn distinctly blue, as in ghost stories, lights most always do. It's kind of clever. Nice little rhyme there. Here's last excerpt. But after this, the monks grew most devout and lived on milk and breakfast food entirely. Each morn from four to five, one took a knout and flogged his mates till they grew good and friarly. Spirits from that time forth they did without and lived the admiration of the shire. We got the voracious record of these doings from an old manuscript found in the ruins. Hear that? It's competent. It's pretty good for a schoolboy. It's like the equivalent of Picasso drawing beautiful naturalistic drawings of a chicken. We know he can do it. He's got the skills to do it. He didn't paint what he painted because he couldn't draw a chicken. He could draw in a naturalistic style as well as anyone. His art took him elsewhere. Well, Eliot didn't write modernist poetry because he couldn't write normal verse in the style of Alfred Lord Tennyson. Here are some lines from his poem. Also around that time, at graduation 1905, he says, Standing upon the shore of all we know, we linger for a moment doubtfully. Then with a song upon our lips, sail we across the harbor bar. No chart to show, no light to warn of rocks which lie below, but let us yet put forth courageously. Now, this is directly handed down from Tennyson who, and not just the way it sounds, not just the rhyme and meter. Who was Tennyson? He dominated the era before Eliot's. It would have been what most people considered great poetry. Occasional poetry, meaning poetry written for an occasion. This is what Eliot's parents and grandparents would have considered to be great. Tennyson, when he was alive, was said he was alive 1809 to 1882. When he was alive, he was said to be one of the most, one of the three most famous living persons in the world. Queen Victoria, Prime Minister William Gladstone, and him. That's pretty rare. Not many poets can say that in their lifetime. Tennyson embodied the Victorian age in 1882. He died. Eliot was born six years later. This is the generation against which Eliot is rebelling. It's his Johnny Carson. Here's a Tennyson poem called Break, Break, Break. Break, Break, Break on thy cold gray stones, O sea. And I would that my tongue could utter the thoughts that arise in me. Oh, well for the fisherman's boy that he shouts with his sister at play. Oh, well for the sailor lad that he sings in his boat on the bay. And the stately ships go on to their haven under the hill. But oh, for the touch of a vanished hand and the sound of a voice that is still. Break, break, break at the foot of thy crags, O sea. But the tender grace of a day that is dead will never come back to me. Now, why is that interesting? It's not just the sing-songy sound of the rhymes. It's the attitude of the poet toward the subject. Here's Tennyson's famous poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade. It's a hugely famous poem about war. It's the Crimean War. It was written in 1854. I'm going to read the whole thing because I want you to hear not just the rhyme and the meter, although that's important to listen to as well, but the whole stance the view of war, the view of a soldier, the stance and attitude that the poem takes toward its subject. One, half a league, half a league, half a league onward, all in the valley of death rode the six hundred. Forward the light brigade, charge for the guns, he said, into the valley of death rode the six hundred. Two, forward the light brigade, 
Was there a man dismayed? Not though the soldier knew someone had blundered. Theirs not to make reply, theirs not to reason why, theirs but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the six hundred. Three. Cannon to right of them, cannon to left of them, cannon in front of them volleyed and thundered. Stormed at with shot and shell, boldly they rode and well, into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell, rode the six hundred. Four. Flashed all their sabers bare, flashed as they turned in air, sabering the gunners there, charging an army while all the world wondered. Plunged in the battery smoke, right through the line they broke, Cossack and Russian reeled from the saber stroke, shattered and sundered. Then they rode back, but not, not the six hundred. Five, cannon to right of them, cannon to left of them, cannon behind them volleyed and thundered. Stormed at with shot and shell, while horse and hero fell, they that had fought so well came through the jaws of death. Back from the mouth of hell, all that was left of them, left of six hundred. Six. When can their glory fade? Oh, the wild charge they made, all the world wondered. Honor the charge they made, honor the light brigade, noble six hundred. You hear that? It's a rousing sort of poem, a kind of celebration of courage and valor. And you can imagine people memorizing the lines and feeling uplifted by them. That's war, you can hear them say. That's soldiering. That's courage. And you could imagine a similar poem being written about a young athlete or a young country lass or a shepherd or a hardworking farmer toiling away. The poet would turn his eyes to that hardworking farmer and praise him, and describe the ceaseless toil and the sweat on the brow. That's the tradition that Eliot and the modernists are up against. That's what came before them. You can see the difference in what were called the Georgian poets. The Georgian poets were Eliot's contemporaries. They wrote in the style of Tennyson, but about the modern world, the same world that Eliot was experiencing, but they wrote in kind of that Tennysonian style both the rhyme and meter and kind of the general attitude. Here's Rupert Brooke writing a famous poem called The Soldier. If I should die, think only this of me, that there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. There shall be in that rich earth a richer dust concealed, a dust whom England bore, shaped, made aware, gave once her flowers to love, her ways to roam, a body of England's breathing English air, washed by the rivers, blessed by sons of home. And think this heart, all evil shed away, a pulse in the eternal mind, no less, gives somewhere back the happy thoughts by England given, her sights and sounds, dreams happy as her day, and laughter, learnt of friends and gentleness, in hearts at peace, under an English heaven. Do you hear that? How that resonates with Tennyson, how it flows right out of Tennyson, gives somewhere back the thoughts by England given, her sights and sounds, dreams happy as her day. Those are well-crafted lines. I'm not here to pick on Rupert Brooke, but the attitude feels like we're in the past. It feels like we're in the 19th century, where a soldier might climb on a horse and be courageous and charge, doing their admirable duty. Brooke updates it a little. It's not quite as jingoistic. And the lines are fine. He's a good poet, maybe even a great one, but not all the Georgian poets were good. Here's what Encyclopedia Britannica has to say about them. Quote, the real gifts of Brooke and others 
should not be overlooked, but taken as a whole, much of the Georgian's work was lifeless. It took inspiration from the countryside and nature, and in the hands of less gifted poets, the resulting poetry was diluted and middle-brow conventional verse of late romantic character. Georgian came to be a pejorative term, used in a sense not intended not intended by its progenitors, rooted in its period, and looking backward rather than forward. End quote. And that's the problem as we steam toward Elliot, climbing on a horse and riding through the countryside, wearing the uniform of your country and hoping to win your fortune and do right by your family and make your nation proud, making everyone proud and improving your lot in life. What's that got to do with being stuck in a trench while Germans wearing gas masks are poisoning you? What does it have to do with tanks and artillery, shells bombing you to smithereens? And what does sitting in a field under a tree thinking about the beauty of the babbling brook mean to someone who rides the metro to work in London and who listens to music on the gramophone and drinks coffee in the morning and works in a huge office? The world has moved on. And poetry, not just the forms of poetry, but the forms of poetry are embodied in that attitude. That's what poetry needs to reflect. Electricity means you might stay up all night and sleep all day. You might go to clubs. You might go to lectures. The futurists would say, life today is about speed and death and destruction. It's not about quaint little country villages and the shepherd out in the pasture, musing about how lovely the green grass is. And the reason why the wasteland was such a shock, such a jolt, such a burst of energy is that it had a whole different attitude toward the world and a whole different attitude toward poetry. The job of the poet wasn't to soften the edges, inspiring readers, and to craft pretty little lines that would do that. The world wasn't soft. The world wasn't inspiring. Pretty little lines don't make sense in this modern world. The world was fast and hard and sharp and full of anger and dynamism and devastation and hate. Or if not hate, then confusion and horror. And Eliot was the man, Eliot looked around. He saw that poetry needed a different style, a different approach, a different attitude on the part of the poet. The late Romantic Victorian style, which the Georgians were more or less adopting, did not work. It was suitable for a nice, quiet countryside poem, the kind of thing you might embroider into a pillow or read to school children to help infuse them with morals. Eliot said, nope. We've got snatches of songs here and memories there and nightmarish visions over here pain and suffering, and they all belong in my poem, the poem of the city, the poem of the era. It's got to be real. I can't pretend I'm out on the farm gazing at cows and listening to nightingales. I've got to be looking at the bridge with people streaming across it in the center of London. But because he was Eliot, with all this poetry and philosophy in him, he also combined it with myth and ideas from poems. He tried to continue the line of poetry, the influences of poetry, to meld it all together. This is the mind, not just his mind, but a kind of universal mind, a Western mind, but also one that's been open to Eastern philosophy. It looks to forerunners like Shakespeare and Dante, but also includes popular music and overheard snatches of conversation. It sometimes uses straightforward rhymes and meter, and sometimes blows that all apart too. And now we should talk about what it's like to read the wasteland. You could argue, and sometimes I would agree with you, that the style is off-putting. It sometimes seems to assume 
that the reader has read all these things, all these texts, and we're supposed to know them, and they're supposed to resonate with us. And what's irritating about that is when a critic will assume that you need to know all that in order to truly understand the poem, and you need to know Latin and Greek and German, and you think, well, what am I doing here? Am I too dumb to understand what's happening? Do I need to spend hours and hours reading background materials before I can get something out of it? Do I need to learn Latin and Greek? There's something even more pernicious about this, even more than obnoxious scholars who act like this poem is for them and not for you. Why would these be the texts that one has to read? They were important to Eliot in 1910 and 1915 and 1920. Does that mean they have to be important to us too? Why is he so special? Because frankly, I don't think he was a great guy necessarily. Sure, he came from this elite family and he went to Harvard, but so what? I didn't. So why does that matter to me? If you're not from Boston and England and an upper crust world, if you didn't go to prep schools, you might think, what? I get it. We should know who Shakespeare is. Fine. But Jules Laforgue and Rimbaud, who says I have to be steeped in that? How elitist do you have to be to appreciate a poem? And why, 100 years later, would it be relevant to me? Culture didn't just stop. No. So it's not going to have James Baldwin and Saul Bellow and Maya Angelou and Joyce Carol Oates. Where's all the literature from India and all the literature from the Cold War and all the television and movies that have come? Why wouldn't a reference to The Godfather mean more to me now than something Eliot found important because he read it in school and liked it? I'm giving you the cons of the poem. But I also want to give you the key that will hopefully unlock the poem for you. I'm taking this from Eliot himself. Eliot read Dante, loved Dante, absolutely revered Dante as everyone should. Dante was the best. Dante was amazing. So he and I agree on Dante. And I'm fluent in Italian, or at least I was at one point in my life. And Dante wasn't easy for me. Even knowing Italian, Dante was no picnic. A little hard. I mean, it's... 700 years old or something now, right? So language changes. And Eliot wasn't an Italian expert. He might have had less than me. But he said, just read the Italian. Just read Dante in Italian. Just for the words and the sounds and whatever meaning you draw from it. Just read it for the poetry. Read it as if you were listening to music with your eyes and your inner ear. It's like your mind listening to music in a way. And then Work out the meaning to explore the richness of it. Get help for that if you need to. Get something side by side. That's how I read The Wasteland. I read it straight through for whatever I can take from it. Sometimes it's the musicality. Sometimes fragments of meanings shine through. Some lines are perfectly understandable. Sometimes they mean something to me. We'll do a close read in a little bit. I'll show you how this works. Other times, though, that's not the case. And then you can explore if you want. You can read the annotations or some analysis of it. And you think, oh, interesting. I wondered what that meant. There it was. He was referring to something else, some ancient work or something from Indian philosophy. That was running through his brain, his brain that was steeped in the stuff that it was steeped in, which doesn't have to be the stuff that my brain is steeped in. But that's okay. My feeble brain took something from it. And now my learning brain can learn some more. And if this was just a hard poem for its own sake, I wouldn't bother with it. Life's too short to read something if it's obscure, just to be obscure. I don't read contemporary books that are full of egotistical references and pointless noise. But when it defines an era, 
like the wasteland, then I'll give it some respect and give it some time. Because I like the idea of a poet who says, look where we are, people. The old poetry does not work. It does not work for this nightmare we are in. We're in this hellscape, and you're talking about sheep. You're talking reverently about the human character and the human condition. You're saying, oh, how strong that farmer is, and oh, how wonderful that fisherman's boy, that sailor is, and how hard he works, and I'm surrounded by zombies who are working all day, and at night they suffer in loneliness and isolation and try to eat something out of a can, beat tinned meat, and drink something and listen to something to cheer them up, and yet it's all doom and gloom. An industrialized nightmare as far as I can see. It's like an out-of-control car is racing through that beautiful pasture of yours and tearing it all up. Let's not just wax eloquent about the grass. Let's talk about the car. And because that's Elliot's project, and because the wasteland is the best result of it, and because underlying all of it is the fascinating project of a man who is also not just talking about his era, but very personally talking about his own pain and suffering in the only way that he knows how to express it. I'll give that poem some time. He himself had a nervous breakdown and had to leave his bank job for three weeks. He had to convalesce. He was in a shelter, writing lines of the poem. His own mind was fractured, damaged, fragmented. He was putting himself back together and clinging to shards of literature as if they were life rafts and bits of driftwood. So here we go. And by the way, if you're a student listening to this, you should take this analysis as you take all of my analyses as encouragement Listen to my enthusiasm, but not to my scholarship, because I'm all over the place and not reliable. You probably flunk if you quote me. I don't want that kind of responsibility. There are scholars who write books about the poem who are much better sources for this stuff. Okay, The Wasteland. Here we go. How about some music to set the stage? Hmm. You guys recognize this? You remember this one? Yes, that's right. The Pet Shop Boys. West End Girls, and you're thinking, why, Jack? Why? Well, listen to the lyrics, and then I'll explain why. Sometimes you're better off dead. There's a gun in your hand that's pointing at your head. You think you're mad, too unstable. Kicking in chairs and knocking down tables in a restaurant in a West End town. Call the police, there's a madman around. Running down underground to a dive bar in a West End town. Right, it was inspired by the wasteland. Songwriter Neil Tennant said the song was inspired by the different narrative voices and the mysterious references in the poem. He said, quote, What I like about it, the wasteland, what I like about it is the different voices, almost a sort of collage. All the different voices and languages coming in, and I've always found that very powerful. So on West End Girls, it's different voices. The line, Just you wait till I get you home is a direct quotation. And that is the right spirit in which to approach the wasteland. Think of it as walking through a funhouse with things jumping out at you. References and words and lines, and sometimes they're reassuring, sometimes mysterious, sometimes not what they seem. Even West End Girls was like this. Sometimes you're better off dead, there's a gun in your hand, and it's pointing at your head. Well, that was Tennant who was watching a gangster movie with James Cagney. He went to bed and woke up with those lines. Just a fragment, just a piece. 
And when a mind is trying to put itself together, it grabs these voices. For Tennant, it was Cagney and Eliot. For Eliot, it was Dante and Shakespeare and many others, as we'll discuss. For us, it's Cagney and Tennant and Dante and Shakespeare and Eliot. We're all cultural magpies trying to make a nest out of as much sense as we can from wherever we can grab it. Different voices. In fact, Eliot's original title for The Wasteland was very similar to that. It was right in that theme. It was a reference to Charles Dickens's novel, Our Mutual Friend, and called, quote, He Do the Policeman in Different Voices, end quote. That's what Eliot was going to call The Wasteland. He spent years writing the poem, by the way. For a while, it was called He Do the Policeman in Different Voices. That's a little too cute, a little too on the nose. The Wasteland. That's a much better title. It's always two words. Eliot insisted it was always waste land, two separate words. Wasteland, the wasteland, unlike he do the policemen in different voices, the wasteland is majestic and haunting, evocative, suggestive. So the wasteland has five sections. The section titles are also excellent. Every one of them is riveting. One, the burial of the dead. Two, a game of chess. Three, the fire sermon. Four, death by water. Five, what the thunder said. Sounds like five Ingmar Bergman films, doesn't it? How excellent are those? We're off to a good start. Actually, let's back up a little bit. The Wasteland is a great title. There's Then there's a quotation on the cover that has epigraph that is Latin and Greek, which I don't know. So I can read that paragraph or skip it. My choice. I don't have to do anything with it. It's a free country. Nobody's paying me to read this. But I can look it up if I choose, and I do choose in this case, and I see that it's from Petronius, the Satyricon, which I've read, but not in Latin. It's the story of the Sibyl, who was given eternal life, but not eternal youth. And when asked what she wanted, she answered, I want to die. Okay, cool. (laughs) I'm glad I looked that one up. Doesn't mean I have to look everything up. It's my choice. But I'm glad I looked that one up. That's a pretty cool story. And it gives the poem a real depth, a real resonance. We'll see how that comes back in now. Next, we have the title. We have For Ezra Pound and the Il Milior Fabro, which we've already discussed. And then Section 1, The Burial of the Dead. Cool. I'm already way more into this than I am into the Rupert Brooke poem. Poor Rupert Brooke. He was a decent poet, but he feels outdated to me now. I'm being tested and challenged and stretched by Eliot, and I too feel like the world has run amok. And so here I am reading Eliot, who's both canonical and a little deranged, maybe more than a little. So let's see how this poem works for me. First line, April is the cruelest month. Wow. One of the great lines in the history of poetry. April is the cruelest month. You see that everywhere now. It forms our conception of April. People quote it all the time, even if they don't know where it's from. Poor April. But think about how strange that is. April is spring. April is renewal. April is rebirth. Why isn't December or January or February the cruelest month? Because we're in the wasteland. The first line shocks us into it. It's like a, the opening shot of a horror movie where we see an old city ravaged and left for dust to the landscape, dry, deserted, hopeless, alone, some bombed-out landscape. Let me read a little more of the poem. It's the first seven lines. 
April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. Winter kept us warm, covering earth in forgetful snow, feeding a little life with dried tubers. Breeding lilacs out of the dead land, stirring dull roots. Winter was better with its forgetful snow. In winter we eked along, we scraped together a little life. That bland nourishment is better than seeing lilacs in these dead lands. Why is that so bad? To see lilacs bloom because it mixes memory and desire. You see things like a lilac in the wasteland, and you remember what things were like before they went all bad. Mixes memory and desire, the nostalgia for better days, the desire to see them again. That's bad. That's the horror. That makes you want to die, as Sybil wants to die, because she remembers life when she was young. The wasteland is so horrible, it's better to be covered with snow and forget than try to pretend that the wasteland isn't real. Already we can see how this is equipped to deal with World War I. Let's be honest with ourselves, it says. Things are not okay. They're not as they were when we were young and happy and frolicking through the meadow, when our society was naive about the horrors of man. Let's recognize that this is a wasteland and see if there's any hope for us. And it's here that Elliot's scholarship is actually helpful, because where do you turn when your world has gone to a horror show? Do you look to leaders, politicians, entertainers? Elliot says no. Let's look to the past, to literature maybe, or to myth. Let's see how people survived when they had no hope. What stories did they tell themselves to get through fire and flood and famine? What gods did they turn to? What heroes did they invent? And now we get a little section that starts to make us wonder if we know who's talking and what he or she is talking about and how we're supposed to read this. It says, Summer surprised us, coming over the Starnberger Sea with a shower of rain. We stopped in the colonnade and went on in sunlight into the Hof Garden and drank coffee and talked for an hour. Bin gar keine Russen, stam aus Litauen, echt Deutsch. Real quick, that line means, I am not Russian at all. I come from Lithuania. I am a real German. And when we were children, staying at the Archduke's, my cousins, he took me out on a sled and I was frightened. He said, Marie, Marie, hold on tight. And down we went. In the mountains, there you feel free. I read much of the night and go south in the winter. Okay, what is this? Who's Marie? Read it like fragments and you have a shower of rain, some people going into the sunlight, into the Hofgarten, talking for an hour, someone who comes in speaking some German, who claims to be a German, if you know German. He says he's a real German, he's not Russian. Nostalgia for someone named Marie, talking, or someone by Marie. I mean, nostalgia by Marie. She's talking about her sled, her cousin, putting her on a sled. And in the mountains, there you feel free, she says. I read much of the night and go south in the winter. This reminds me of one of my favorite stories about poetry, about the poetry teacher who read the headline that he couldn't get out of his mind. This was in the heyday of Michael Jackson when we all loved Thriller. And then we pretty much loved Bad. And yet Michael was getting weirder and weirder, and we didn't know exactly what to do. And there was a headline that said, Michael Jackson's plastic face is melting. And this poet read that and said, my God, 
there's a poetry in that that I just can't replicate. How do you even write such a line? It's so perfect in the way that it sounds, the meaning it conveys, the tone, the voice. It's confident and stately, and yet it's got some desperation to it, too. It's like a town crier who's warning us all of some madness, some prophet of doom. Michael Jackson's plastic face is melting, and that's how I think of Elliot, or how I prefer to think of him. Not as someone who's saying, I found the answers. Here's what they are. Now listen to me and try to keep up. But as someone who's saying, I'm in desperate need of answers, and here are the things that keep popping into my head. My God, this is like poetry. In the mountains there you feel free. I read much of the night and go south in the winter. Michael Jackson's plastic face is melting. Elliot read that, some memoirs by some German named Marie. Can't remember now. (laughs) I'm sure it matters to some scholars. It may matter to you. Go find it. Go look it up if you care. I did read it. Some, I don't know. There's some whole thing about the book he read by this woman, Marie. But to me, what's important here is just that it's a fragment that's in his head. He grabbed it. He grabbed it because he found it. He found it because it was poetry and it was there. And it's helping him make sense of the world. More lines. What are the roots that clutch what branches grow out of this stony rubbish? Son of man, you cannot say or guess, for you know only a heap of broken images where the sun beats and the dead tree gives no shelter, the cricket no relief, and the dry stone no sound of water. Only there is shadow under this red rock. Come in under the shadow of this red rock, and I will show you something different from either your shadow at morning striding behind you or your shadow at evening rising to meet you. I will show you fear in a handful of dust. Elliot himself added some annotations to the wasteland. He tells us that we have passages here from Ezekiel and Ecclesiastes, And we also know he's quoting John Donne's devotions with the handful of dust line. But it kind of doesn't matter, right? You can hear those lines. You can hear the meaning. The dead tree that gives no shelter, the cricket no relief, and the dry stone no sound of water. You can picture this. Only there is shadow under this red rock. And he says, I will show you something different from either from either your shadow at morning striding behind you or your shadow at evening rising to meet you, I will show you fear in a handful of dust. Who's talking? Marie? Elliot? Who cares? It's like a mind, a big universal mind reassembling itself, a culture that's been exploded and is trying to reconstitute itself in front of our eyes. And at the same time, it's trying to reflect Reality, modernity, which is vast and empty and unforgiving, the kind of place where you celebrate life by wishing you were dead. You can dig into this poem for yourselves. I can't go line by line through the whole thing, but it doesn't just stick to this weird place. We go into a tarot reader from there who's looking at the cards in the pack, and we go to London. Here's another beautiful passage I can't resist. We're still in the first section, by the way. Unreal City. Under the brown fog of a winter dawn, a crowd flowed over London Bridge, so many. I had not thought death had undone so many. Sighs, short and infrequent, were exhaled, and each man fixed his eyes before his feet, flowed up the hill and down King William Street, to where St. Mary Woolnoth kept the hours with a dead sound on the final stroke of nine. Now, 
You can know that it's a reference to Dante and Baudelaire, and it helps to know that, but it's not necessary. If you're hearing strange voices, some of them resonate, some of them sound familiar, some of them you recognize right away, that's the way to dive in, and then you can learn more. Some of One of Elliot's notes here is, a phenomenon I have often noticed. <laughs> He's looking at London, this unreal city, with the brown fog. But the only way he can do it justice is to compare it with Dante's Inferno and the feeling Dante expressed so long a reign of people that I should never have believed death had done, undone so many. And Elliot looks at the people walking over London Bridge, and that's what comes to his mind. Not, oh, hey, there they go, those nine-to-fivers, how exciting that they're part of this bustling economy. Or, hey, great tourists, excited to see new things and have new experiences. No, he sees the people and he thinks this is just like hell, literally the inferno. This is Dante all over again. This is what comes to his mind and the feeling of watching the dead stream past and feeling like there are so many. All those people are dead. Remember what Elliot said when he wanted to leave Oxford? I don't wish to be dead. That's what Elliot sees when he looks at the bridge. And the references to Baudelaire are key as well. Tennyson was a 19th century Victorian who stood for being out there in the countryside, waxing poetic about the grass and the trees. Baudelaire was in Paris at the same time, looking at the slums and the creeps, the debauched and the degenerates. And Eliot finds his home with Baudelaire. That's what resonates for him. There's more, much more, but I think I'll have to let you explore the rest of the riches for yourselves. Hopefully I've set the table for how to do that. The rest of the poem will have quotes from or references to allusions to Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra and Goldsmith's Vicar of Wakefield and Ovid's Metamorphoses and Sappho and Augustine and Buddha's Fire Sermon and Herman Hesse and Webster's White Devil. Dante runs all through it in the Hindu fable of the meaning of the thunder is in there. We'll see a woman who eats her food in tins and listens to the gramophone and is assaulted by a mythical character, an ancient observer. We'll have lines from Antarctic explorations. We'll have kids, Spanish tragedy, and more, much more. Homer, Bram Stoker, Milton, Aldous Huxley, Chaucer, Virgil, Walt Whitman, Joseph Conrad. Here's the summation of E.M. Forster. This is very good. He's writing about 15 years later which is more or less perfect. The moment of the wasteland is still fresh. He was there for it, but some time has passed. One can see it in perspective. And Forster says, quote, Let me go straight to the heart of the matter, fling my poor little hand on the table, and say what I think the wasteland is about. It is about the fertilizing waters that arrived too late. It is a poem of horror. The earth is barren, the sea salt, the fertilizing thunderstorm, broke too late, and the horror is so intense that the poet has an inhibition and is unable to state it openly. What are the roots that clutch? What branches grow out of this stony rubbish? Son of man, you cannot say or guess, for you know only a heap of broken images. He cannot say avant to the horror, or he would crumble into dust. Consequently, there are outworks and blind alleys all over the poem, obstacles which are due to the nature of the central emotion and are not to be charged to the reader. The Wasteland is Mr. Eliot's greatest achievement. It intensifies the drawing-room premonitions of the earlier poems, and it is the key to what is puzzling in the prose. But 
If I have its hang, it has nothing to do with the English tradition and literature, or law or order, nor, except incidentally, has the rest of his work anything to do with them either. It is just a personal comment on the universe, as individual and as isolated as Shelley's Prometheus. Gerard Manley Hopkins is a case in point, a poet as difficult as Mr. Eliot and far more specialized ecclesiastically. Yet however twisted his diction and pietistic his emotion, there is always a hint to the layman to come in if he can and participate. Mr. Eliot does not want us in. He feels we shall increase the barrenness. To say he is wrong would be rash, and to pity him would be the height of impertinence, but it does seem proper to emphasize the real as opposed to the apparent difficulty of his work. He is difficult because he has seen something terrible, and, underestimating, I think, the general decency of his audience, has declined to say so plainly. End quote. That's what the wasteland promises us. You can read it all for yourselves and dig into as much as you want or just read it for what it is and not go down rabbit hole after rabbit hole. But the point of all of it is that it is one man's response to how a culture should respond to its moment. And that man who had poetical gifts and a broad education, who himself suffered in pain and torment at a time when the whole world was in pain and torment, and who was helped not just by his gifts but by his own editorial powers— which included the help of Ezra Pound. That's something we shouldn't lose sight of. Let's spend a little more time on that. When you read a poem like this, it's not just the 400 and some lines that we read. It's the 800 or lines or so or more that got left out that are helpful in making the poem good. The 400 would be worse if we had to slog through those others as well. Let me give you an example of Pound's editing. Eliot started the third section with these lines, quote, leaving the bubbling beverage to cool, Fresca slips softly to the needful stool, where the pathetic tale of Richardson eases her labor till the deed is done. End quote. Okay, a woman goes to the bathroom. She reads Richardson, probably Pamela, while she goes to the bathroom and Pound says, or maybe Clarissa, I guess, when she goes to the bathroom and Pound says, hang on. The verse here, these heroic couplets have been done already. Alexander Pope did them better. And a woman going to the bathroom, Joyce has just done that. So that was new, but now it's not. No sense in repeating it. Let's take these lines out. Verse isn't fresh and new, neither is the subject matter. That's the kind of high standard that they were going for. It had to be either better than anyone else had done or completely new. If it couldn't say either of those things, it was gone. We owe Pound a lot for sharpening the poem. Without him, we'd have a block of marble that vaguely looks like a person. With him, we have something that in its own way and for its own time stands in majestic isolation like the David. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I want to give a special thank you to our email writers today and to Mr. T.S. Eliot, who has somehow been handed down to us as a kind of embodiment of dead white male poets, of canon- canonical, canonical writers, even though he himself was a lot more of a misfit and a malcontent than he may have seemed from his essays and his Boston Brahmin background and his work at the bank and the publishing house. He wasn't assessing the culture from Academic Mountain, I don't think. I think he was doing his best. And if you like the musical Cats, that's him too, old possum. He wrote those poems, which Andrew Lloyd Webber used for the lyrics. 
Elliot had a bunch of different sides. We are a member of the Podglomerate Network, which you can learn about at www.thepodglomerate.com. And you can learn more at historyofliterature.com and Facebook and Twitter, etc., etc. Oh, and LitHub Radio, that's in there too, almost forgot. We are a part of that now as well, which is exciting. We'll have more information about all this in an upcoming episode. For now, I'm trying to make it through and keep my head above water. If you've contacted me about something in the last few months and I haven't gotten back to you, please be patient. I am working my way back to a position of strength, or at least mediocrity, which is about the best I can do given the circumstances, or given the circs, as someone might say. They were cooler than I am. Given the circs. I'll give you some circs, mister. No, no, not the circs. Time to go. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time. Pod Glomer. A Sonic Universe.